0: This is the Shift
1: Podcast.
0: On the Shift Daily Podcast, what is sleep anyway? We all do it. Dr. Rebecca Spencer, Associate Professor in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, helps us understand how we find healthy sleeping habits, how our phones can disturb our sleep, and what really happens when we dream. Also, do you tip or do you feel guilted into tipping? Your calls and texts here on the Shift, plus. Are you okay with chess and cheese? It's all in the Shift Daily Podcast. Sometimes here on the Shift, we do get, uh, they're intended as compliments. Shane, you put me to sleep. Now, as a radio host, I get it. It's a compliment. I'm grateful that you're listening, but putting you to sleep is not really my intention. Selfishly, I want you to stay awake, but I get it. You need to go to sleep. And boy, what a compliment is it. For you to choose me and my my gang here of all these people uh, to join, uh, allow us to join you in your slumber. That's really cool. So it is a bit of a crossroads of mixed emotion. But what is sleep? How do we do the sleep? And I would even go as far as do we even understand it? I mean, we do it. But do we know Why? would we live into it more if we knew more about it? And that's where we have uh, Rebecca Spencer here. And Rebecca is a PhD in a long list of uh, neuroscience, behavioral neuroscience, cognition, cognitive neuroscience, development science. There's a lot of brain electricity going on, Rebecca. Thanks for being here.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Um, Well, a long history of work for you in and around your brain and uh, sleep. Can we call you the sleep lady?
2: Yep. I'll take that.
0: You take that. You love sleep. Why do you love sleep?
2: (laughs) I think it's just a fascinating area. You know, it's just such a basic thing that we all do. And yet, as you ask, like, do we really know why we sleep? Do we really know what's all happening there? And I would say, no, we don't actually yeah. know all those answers. And so I feel like it's this wide open space of discovery. It's true scientific discovery about a very basic thing that we all experience.
0: We, I always say don't should on people. And so we, we, sh- we shouldn't should on ourselves about sleep. Why do you sleep? Because I should, right? Why do you go to bed for eight hours? Because I should right? Like we don't actually think what's best for me. When should I sleep? How do I sleep? Um, You know, so yet we sort of should all over ourselves about this thing that we don't understand. And we just the this autopilot in our brain kicks in because we were conditioned to believe that, well, we should. So how do how can we think about this differently and turn sleep into an asset for us?
2: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, some of that should comes even from our physicians and um, society saying you need Uh, seven, eight hours of sleep each day. And yet I will admit as a sleep scientist that we actually don't know how many hours of sleep an individual needs each day. I can estimate your individual sleep need, but yours is likely different than mine, which is likely different than many of your listeners'. So I think that's something that we're still learning. How much sleep does one need? And we can only say at an individual level, don't get hung up by expectations that you hear, but instead find that amount of sleep that you need to feel good about yourself. The other piece that I think we overlook is it's not just sleep time, it's sleep consistency. How can you sleep well and what can you maintain night to night? So if we're going from you know three hours, four hours, five hours on a weekday, and then trying to catch up with 12, 14 hours on a weekend, That's called social jet lag. And it's, you know, jet lag like we might experience when we travel is never comfortable and it's really unhealthy. And so sleep consistency is the piece we don't talk about, but just as important.
0: Oh, that's absolutely fascinating right there. That try to get caught up thing. Um, I mean, I think we wake up a couple of different ways. Uh, I invite your correction, please. But we wake up with the, we wake up refreshed or we wake up thinking we're ready to go that could be worry, that could be uh, stress, that could be don't upset the boss, that could be get these extra things done, right? So th- we even can't be clear to ourselves about why am I waking up? I can give you an example. I mean, we work late here on the shift and normally I always give my, I allow myself in my schedule eight hours, unless it's something parenting, drive the kids, whatever. I allow myself eight hours, nothing's booked inside that. And if I wake up, I wake up. Over the last few days that I've had off here, um 9:30 in the morning I've been waking up at 9:30 I mean I've been doing the show for a few years and and normally that to me now my old world it would be 7 but that's really early but it's just happening do I know that it's healthy do I know that it's enough or am I just like oh, I'm kind of stressed about money I've got to get things sorted
2: Yeah I mean I guess we go for this um kind of mythical, if I could go off and free sleep for two weeks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if I, if there's this mythical two-week vacation that none of us ever seem to get, <laughs> how long would we be sleeping? Because we got to also consider that, like, how much you sleep the first three, four days of your vacation time, you're usually sleeping to catch up on sleep debt. And then you're also sleeping to kind of break your ha- sleep habits right. that keep us waking up and going to bed when we normally do. So it kind of takes a little time to figure out what that is. And so me- most people look at me like I've got two heads when I'm like, "Go free sleep for two weeks and see where you land. So it's, but the pandemic actually gave a lot some people, an opportunity to free sleep in ways that we don't normally get. So you yeah. might've been able to set your own schedule a bit more and get to know your sleep need a bit more, particularly early in the pandemic, when, you know, things were really at home and less yeah. restricted. Saving um, our so commuting that's one time, for example, right? Like, yeah, yeah. So that's one opportunity some people have. I mean, the other thing is you can also, given that very few of us get this mythical two week vacation, you can also just say like, well, bounce around. If you're able to you know, take some time to extend your sleep, and see how much you can how much more you get. At some point, if I extended my sleep, I'm not gonna be able to keep sleeping. Um, so you can just kind of learn more about yourself that way, um, but it takes time. But I think the most important message I want to get across is that if you feel like you're giving yourself eight hours of sleep, but you're not sleeping eight hours, don't stress that you're not sleeping eight hours and that's what you need. It's possible that you don't need that much because when we create stress around our sleep, that's only going to make the problem worse. That's only going to keep you sleeping less. So try not to stress about hitting some magic number. Find some reasonable number that you might be able to do night to night to night. So rather than trying to, you know, try to give myself some eight to 10 hour interval that might be impractical, give yourself a good six to seven hour window that you can maintain consistently. Then, if you have time, you could extend it a little bit at a time. But first, learn some pattern that you can maintain and maintain with consistency. Uh, I
0: just feel like we need to acknowledge the righteousness of sleep. When for that two week vacation part, right? Like this is my time and I'm going to sleep now because it's, you can't take that away from me thing we go through, um, or maybe that's just me uh, when we're on vacation, right? Uh, cause we have this, like, I owe it to myself and, and everything that there's some expectation there that we're supposed to do it. And I, I wonder if that lets us down a little bit when we do go to vacation and we wake up and we're like, Oh, I just didn't sleep right? And yet we're somehow disappointed, like there's some expectation. We can't really expect it to just happen, can we?
2: No, I don't think we can. I mean, that's why I think we always have to have expectations of changing sleep in small increments. So you can't expect that you're going to go to bed and gain two hours every night, but you also can't just go in and try to shorten it back after the vacation's over either. So uh, I like to think of it as going in 15, minute increments or 30 minute increments and just giving yourself increasing the window as you uh, have opportunity. But I also have to point out just like we can't always like, or, or we might have these expectations around sleeping with vacations. I think the opposite is how quickly we compromise sleep when we're working, how quickly when we get too busy, sleep tends to be the first thing to go. Um, You know, we have students that brag about pulling an all nighter to get ready for an exam. So I also think we need to be cautious about that opposite side when we just get busy and what else, what do we cut from our schedule? And it's often sleep rather than trying to find some other things that preserve sleep somewhat um, and then, you know, maintaining our sleep as much as possible though.
0: All right. Protecting sleep. Um, That to me is sort of a cause and effect scenario. If we're going to protect sleep, that means that that really becomes the outcome. That doesn't become the cause of it, right? So that becomes the outcome. So if we're going to protect sleep, um, how do we protect it? One of the inspiration pieces that came from uh, us asking you to join us today was alarm clocks. That really was um, one of the pieces of the puzzle. And, And often when people say to me... I'm curious of your thoughts on this. They'll say, you know, I need more sleep or my day, you know, I just can't get enough done in my day. And I'll often say, well, what time did you start your day? And they, they will say, well, okay, well, I started my day here. I say, okay, but what time did you, 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 to you, your day started when you woke up? And I, and they're like, yeah. I said, well, what did you get arrested? Well, not really. Okay. So did your day start when you woke up or did your day start when you went to bed? Because if getting rest is the cause for a good day tomorrow, therefore, what is the cause for getting the good rest? Meaning, the time you set your alarm at, not the time you set your alarm for, becomes the important part of the alarm clock. If you set your alarm at 1130, right, that could be too late for you. doesn't matter what time you wake up. But if you set your alarm at nine, that's where we start this process. Is that crazy to look at alarm clocks and and life that way as as a bit of a, let's wind this backwards into last night before we went to bed as to some of the solutions of how we feel great tomorrow?
2: I love it. I mean, absolutely true that I think, you know, thinking about what time we're putting ourselves to bed um, is just as much of part of the equation. Um, But you also think of, you know, the night as the beginning of my day. But I also want to emphasize that the night is also the end of my day because Mm. all of this stuff that I'm gathering up during our conversation during the rest of my day is the information that goes into my sleep tonight. That is my brain is going to be hard at work all night long on everything that happened during my day. So one of the coolest things about sleep science, I think is that your brain right now in the memory areas is making a little recording of what this conversation. Mm-hmm. And when you go to sleep tonight, you're gonna have a little r- rewind of this conversation. And this, this conversation is gonna be on replay over and over again. Just like if you wanted to learn all of the words to your favorite song, you'd listen to it on rewind. That's the way our memory area of our brain works is it puts memories like this conversation on replay all night long. And so how do we learn things from our day? We actually learn it while we're sound asleep oh, at wow. night. So that's um, that is super cool. The
0: filing system, right?
2: Yeah. So that's a filing system. That, the other thing what, has- I
0: don't want to interrupt the thought, but I want to be quick. Is, so is that kind of like where your brain's going? Okay, well, this conversation with Rebecca was important. Going to pick up uh, potatoes from the store, not important. You're out. Um, Right, and then then you maybe saw, uh, you someone cut you off on the way to the potatoes. Okay, that part stays because you need to not get cut off. Is that is that kind of what you mean about reconciling?
2: Absolutely. And so we we flag some memories as being particularly important to maybe maybe not just replay that one once. Let's replay that one a few times. Mm-hmm. Things like emotion, like somebody cuts you off, you got upset about it. That's something that can tag some memories as being. Like, let's do a little extra work on that. Memories that are associated with value. It's important to you, it has value. Mm. Those will also get some tag to say, let's work on that some extra, not just one time, let's replay it a few times. And that process then by replaying it, we're gonna remember it better. We're also gonna store it away more efficiently. The other thing I like to emphasize that's super cool about this process is when you replay these memories, you replay them on fast forward. So it's not that you take this like 16 hours of your waking day and just replay it at the same speed, we wouldn't be very efficient that way. It's replayed almost 10 times faster than it took place. So this is like not just rewatching the video, but rewatching it on high speed, oh, which fun. makes the again makes the brain super efficient all while we're sound asleep.
0: Uh, I don't understand how people can listen to podcasts that two times as fast, by the way. I don't get that. So this is amazing. Well, now we know
2: how your brain could. Yeah, my
0: brain probably (laughs) could, right? I mean, isn't that the case? Okay, so dreams then. If dreams are reconciling the things that have happened, now I don't want to say wrong because that implies some sort of morality to it, but can your brain file things getting cut off on the way to get potatoes, I can't believe that's our example but it is um that okay so getting cut off so it's fear reaction um inconsiderate reckless all of those things get attached to it could your brain put that in connected to an old memory and then so it becomes a negative memory versus not the thought of phew i survived i did it i'm a good driver so can your brain mislead you a little bit in how it does that
2: yeah, I mean, I think it could, I'm not sure I would call it misleading, but I think it is going to make sure like, well, let me second guess that one. Let me make sure I'm filing it away with the right information. But the good thing is it's not going to, the, the nice part about this process that's taking place while we're sleeping is it's not taking the memory just purely as it occurred, but it's now going to integrate it with other experiences. Maybe that other time you got cut off on the way to school, mm. um, it's going to take similar insights. Instances and similar memories find similarities and things that overlap, and that's when you're going to decide, "Hey, I'm not going to overgeneralize from this one instance." Rather, your brain saying, "Let me compare it with other similar events, and then make." And so, it might actually make you more rational. It might actually be the piece that helps you realize, "Hey, it's not that every time you go get potatoes, somebody cuts you off, or it's not." It, it, by putting it together with other similar instances of being cut off or other instances of going to get potatoes you actually can more wisely generalize from that instance so Mm -hmm. i actually think that's what makes us less emotionally reactive is because now we're able to not just look at that one thing in isolation we're now thinking about it in comparison with this other information like hey maybe it wasn't so bad
0: Yeah, well, the great example to that, using cars, is that this winter on the highway, snowy day, I had a near miss with three friends in the car. We made it through, slid through, no problem. We were fine. They were very scared in it. I was driving. We made it through okay. Okay. I didn't dream about I I don't remember dreaming about it at all being a negative experience at all anything and I've had crashes in the past so though I feel like that that's kind of like your brain working it going nope this one worked out this is good things to be learned. I mean am I going to be so keen on driving in a snowstorm next time probably not. Um, But this is fascinating when you talk about dreams dreams have always been this mystical place. Is is there science behind it now? Like, I mean, the 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 mystical dream part. It's a beautiful mystical storyline, but can we actually now study the dream? Versus, because um, I mean, it was so not. When you, what when, when I die and you cut over my cut, cut over my brain, Rebecca, you're going to not you're gonna not like you're gonna open up and go, boy, oh, found found the cut off at of potatoes memory, like it's not there, um, so it's not tangible. Is there? It, is there science behind it now?
2: Yeah, and that's what's so great about um, this area of research is that it's evolving really quickly. And one way we can actually know that, I mean, for a while people even thought, did dreams actually occur when you're, while you're sleeping or is it just so you wake up then you have this, your brain is active with this confabulation that you just think occurred while you were sleeping. So now with brain imaging methods, where you go in and you watch how somebody's brain is responding while they sleep, which is a hard thing to do, you can actually see how um, dreams are evolving while a person's sleeping. And so that is part of the scientific proof that Number one, dreams are occurring actually while we're sleeping, but we can also see, oh, and the areas that are of the brain that are involved make sense. So, you know, a lot of imagery, you see a lot of these visual areas active, a lot of language components, you're going to see a lot of language areas active. And so it actually is like the networks that we use when we're awake are truly being active while we're sleeping. And that sounds really basic, but for scientists, that's like the starting point we need to start understanding understanding scientifically why do we dream what do we do with that in our brain that's step one
0: did you know that you would be an electrician as you became a a neuroscientist (laughs)
2: I I would, I don't know that I would have gone this direction if it was ever thought of that way, but it's so true. I mean, that is what we're studying is all of the different wires, not just an electrician, but one that we don't even have a map of where the wiring is in this house. (laughs) And there are thousands and thousands of wires going all over the place. Yeah, it's very cool.
0: Yeah, I, I, uh, I find it's kind of like living in two worlds, really. I mean, I think that I, my vivid dreaming sometimes happens so quickly. Like it's like closing my eyes and like a daydream it just like poof it's there and then you wake up 10 minutes later and it's gone and you're like i don't know what i was dreaming but it was so vivid and it was like two worlds i mean it, it really is you know it, it feels real it you know the experience of it is real i often wonder about dogs you know do they even know the difference between this reality and their dream reality
2: my dog, it's great that you brought that up. My, we have a brand new dog park in town and my dog has never dreamed as much as he did last night. And so there's, you know, like it's a little circumstantial, but like, there's gotta be this connection between what they do during the day and what they're experiencing in their sleep. Um, you know, for us though, most of the time we look at a dog and we're like, oh, they're dreaming because their paws are moving and they're making noises for us when we're dreaming, at least in that, Classic REM dreaming that people often talk about, we aren't moving. We should have muscle paralysis. And so, when our muscles are able to move during some of that true REM sleep, that actually is considered REM sleep behavior disorder. And it comes with some really interesting um, experiences, but it's also uh, become a lead in to understanding neurodegenerative diseases. So, there you go. You go from just studying sleep in this time when we think we're just turning ourselves off to suddenly having a window that possibly gives us insight into neurodegenerative disease. Um, So that's, again, like one of the things that's so why it's important to understand dreaming and how the brain is working while we're sleeping is because these things do seem to be linked to things like neurodegenerative disease.
0: Now, I'm not a psychologist. I would say that this conversation alone really allows a lot of space for all of us to realize That when we go to sleep, our brain is going to do what it's going to do and we're not bad people, right? Like it's, we sort of attach that as being an identifier, our dreams as an identity thing. And I think that this, this is pretty freeing. If you can listen from that place of, Hey, your brain's got work to do and it's going to do the work. Then by the way, it's not, um, you know, you're not, you're not a bad person if you had a bad dream today. Uh, you know, I, I think that's kind of freeing.
2: I hope it is. And I think it's great to understand that your brain has a lot of work to do while you're sleeping, and we need to give it time to do that. I also want to speak to those audience members that are like, I've never in my life remembered a dream. Well, that too, that doesn't necessarily mean they're not doing this processing. There's certain things that can enhance your dream recall. So some people, I would argue that everybody is dreaming. It gets that, that kind of... Um, language around what actually is a dream if i dream and i don't recall it later did i actually dream if a tree falls in a forest right (laughs) yeah (laughs) right i think that the brain is is construing similar scenarios that we would call a dream but if i don't wake up and try to recall that dream right away i'll actually not remember the dream. Dreams are these very super short lasting memories. And so if we don't recall them right away after waking up, we've lost them. So there's people, if you think you've never dreamt before, you don't dream very often, you have that same processing going on. It's just not everybody has what I actually think is a great opportunity of recalling your dreams. Sometimes dreams are bad and we're disappointed we recalled them, or you can really obsess about a repetitive dream. But there's also great stories of people getting inspiration for art and um books and uh, songs all from their dreams so i think there's a bit of creativity and, and inspiration that can come out of our dreams when we do have the opportunity to recall them
0: i used to have a dream about breathing underwater i was always afraid that maybe i would drown one day turns out went and took a scuba diving lesson it was when i was there it was like so i'm like this is it this is my dream and then i've never needed to go diving again I thoroughly enjoyed it. Dream has never, I don't recall, the dream has ever come back. Um, So much so that I had dreams about a haunted building. And again and again and again, this big old haunted building. But then I started to recognize the dream. And I don't even know how my brain did this, but in my dream, um, I would be like, oh, it's the dream again. Don't worry, it's not really haunted. So it's almost like my dream adapted to the negativity of the dream. And so like it becomes such a wide scope. I mean, you have in your world, people who claim to be fortune tellers from their dreams, and from their description, some pretty convincing arguments that they dreamt of things happening before they happened. And then at the same time, you have the hard work part of the brain doing the work. How do you manage all of that? Or do you just trust in the process? I mean, science is systematic study. So do you just stick to it? Like, it's so big.
2: It is so big. And I guess that's why, you know, I know, I know I have a long career ahead. And I I know that my trainees have a long career ahead. But I think, you know, we take it one question at a time. There's one um, theory of dreaming that you get to. And that is we dream to practice for events. And so this is a a dream theory. uh, and, And so in your case, are you practicing for not drowning by giving yourself skills to avoid drowning. So I actually had this really similar, and I would have thought that that's a crazy idea. I don't dream of running, being chased by a tiger because someday I might be chased by a tiger, but that was this theory in the field. Well, one night I had a dream that my young daughter, fell and drowned in a pool. Well, I'll tell you, I then enrolled her in swim lessons and she went on to join the swim team. I mean, so did I learn something from that dream? Absolutely. And so it's possible that some of our dreams, at least, do have a function like that to show us possible scenarios that we can then learn from. Now, is that an accidental function of dreams, like a side effect of dreams? Quite possibly. Um, But I don't think we should overlook that that's, that's something we get out of having dreams, especially in the cases that people are able to recall them.
0: Well, i think i should acknowledge the fact that i also don't remember if i ever slipped and fell on a dock and almost fell in the water and that scared me if i saw a tv show and i wasn't really paying attention it was on in the background and someone drowned in the movie right like and i wasn't really paying attention but my brain caught it right so there i i when i tell the story of the the swimming i'm not acknowledging that i don't know all the lead up to it either
2: And that's exactly the challenge of studying dreams is how we do try to ask questions around other things that can contribute to these ideas to really try to, we actually think that there's there's the idea of dream residue. So things that happen during your day end up in your dreams. Things that happened a week ago actually tend to get incorporated into your dreams today. And so that kind of combination of daytime experiences that tell us what to dream about is just as much contributing to the input as the input contributing to how we then make decisions during our during our day like me enrolling my daughter in swim lessons Mm -hmm. so it's a two-way street no doubt like the things that happen during my day dictate my dreams but my dreams could also have this opportunity to change how i'm going to behave the next day
0: oh interesting well and yeah that's just fascinating okay is your brain busier at night or is it busier in the day when you guys plug in things and watch all the electricity fly around
2: Oh, I love this. Um, Certain parts of your brain, I would almost argue, are busier. There's some parts of your brain that I would say that's busy, but some of them, like all the energy is going to that. And I also will say, uh, so I talked about REM sleep. Then there are all these different stages of sleep. So our brain is not behaving the same in each of those different stages. It's different during what's called slow wave sleep, that deep sleep. The brain looks different than in REM sleep. And then there's some lighter sleep that looks even more i'd say at the level of the brain kind of boring Mm. so in some of these sleep stages there's area like the memory area of the brain lights up right and that's really amazing maybe not quite as much as if i'm actively learning something during the day but the amount of activity you see there is pretty impressive um and then if you move into REM sleep you're going to see different areas some of these like idea areas the visual areas um so it actually rather than just kind of thinking of sleep as this one big blob you can think of it as being actually different types of sleep and all of those different sleep stages are important, which is when, you know, if you're, if you, if you ask me a question, like, how much should I sleep? You also have to think, well, you have to sleep enough to get these different sleep stages. So a nap, for instance, might be too short to get to REM sleep. And if that's what you want to get out of sleep, then you need to get about 90 minutes. And so our sleep is evolving during the course of the sleep. And so our brain areas that are active, that's also changing during the course of a night or during the course of a nap.
0: I feel like I can connect to that because uh, my girlfriend, Melanie, she lives in your time zone, Eastern time zone. And so there are times when I catch an early flight, I'll get three hours of sleep and I'll go. Right. We've all been through that. Um, And so the the one day it'll occur to me where I've just got to get to sleep on the plane. I'll feel just dreadful, like I'm a bag of potatoes, like I got nothing. Uh, But then there are other days when I'm actually quite stimulated, and I can have a conversation on the whole flight, I can get there, I can be alive, I can have a little 20-minute nap when I get there, maybe an hour nap, and then feel great. And then I go back to my normal sleep schedule, no problem. So uh, that, to me, is how I feel like I just connected with what you said, is that there are different elements to the sleep, and it's possible that this trip I got most of the ones I needed today, even though it was only three hours. And then on this trip, I might've only barely got started, had needed a lot more work, and therefore, you know, I feel like I got hit by a bus.
2: I think you're absolutely right.
0: That's so cool. That's fascinating. (laughs) Okay, alarm clocks, phones in our, like, I'm assuming that you guys have done work around, you know, the blue light from phones and all the things we hear about. I'm curious, I mean, are we doing ourselves a disservice with pretty graphs on our Apple watch that tells us we had a good sleep or not? um, are, are we, uh, you know, looking at, are we oversimplifying it? Um, then we've got our phones in our rooms versus the old traditional alarm clock that just goes beep, beep, beep. So therefore we don't worry about anything, but the time I like having the time on the ceiling. People don't like having the time on the ceiling. Um, you know, the, the phone itself, there's all kinds of electrical science there. Where does that land? Oh, well, that's a lot, but where does it all that that's land? Yeah. I'll
2: start speaking, but I'm sure I'm going to miss them. So, um, I mean, so number one, I think the biggest problem with phones is our tendency to sit there late after we're, we're trying, we it's just beside the bed, but oh, I'll just look at it for a little bit while I wind down. Mm-hmm. So there you are in a dark room, but a light is just shining straight into your eyes. And then, hey, maybe in the middle of the night, you're having a hard time sleeping rather than just kind of really challenge yourself to fall back asleep. I'll just grab my phone for a few yeah. minutes. And now you're shining light directly into your eyes. That's one of the biggest problems with phones is that it's light shining directly into our eyes. And light is what actually is going to keep us from falling asleep. So, you know, people are so quick to turn to melatonin to help them fall asleep. We have melatonin, we just don't like how to access it. The only the way to get your own melatonin to work is to sit in dim light for about forty five minutes before you want to fall asleep. That's what it's going to get for your own natural melatonin to start trickling out. That's interesting. Yeah, we instead watch TV, we look at computer screens, we have a, a, a phone light shining in our eyes. And so that's going to make it harder for us to fall asleep. So, you know, I think the phone itself as that, that's my alarm clock, frankly, but now and then if I have a hard time falling asleep, I have a terrible tendency to reach over to that phone and and do something stupid. It's counterproductive to shine a light at your face. Um, alarm clocks are interesting. I mean, alarm clocks uh my 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 main thing to kind of like alarm clocks is when you wake up with an alarm clock you actually are more likely to recall your dreams because you're a person that needs to be woken up and you're likely to be woken up during REM sleep and it gives you this opportunity to rem- remember your dreams. So that's one thing about alarm clock users. So some people that can wake up naturally without a clock and then they they might be those people that are less likely to use alarm or wait to remember their dreams. So that's um, something to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. But the type of alarm clock, there is kind of this move towards Really minimizing the lights in your room, so it's not just the I'm picking up my phone and looking at it, but you can also be. A lot of people are really sensitive to any little LEDs around the room, and so you want something with as little, uh, little light as possible, just to even prevent those distractions.
0: It's fascinating. It's also fascinating. I mean, uh, because of the later sleep in my day with the nature of the show, the eye pillow has been the biggest gift ever, even different than a blind, right? It, it for yeah, me, it's I been mean- totally different.
2: Those are, and and this is what's fun about sleep science too, is like the modern technology around sleep. So something else, you got it. So so that's a great way to help maintain darkness while you're sleeping. The other thing that we're seeing is, so you. I think you asked a little bit about like my Apple watch. And yeah, I mean, there's a little light if I turn over just right. But like, is that all of that feedback about my sleep, um, that some of these things, so in some of the alarm clocks are even supposed to be smart alarm clocks where I can what know what time or what supposed sleep stage you're in and wake you up at an ideal time that's the way some of these the new technology is working and so you can ask like whether this stuff is accurate and whether it's useful in general if you look at your smartwatch and want to know how much you slept it tends to be pretty accurate at telling you sleep time if that's all you want to get out of your smartwatch is how long you slept pretty good if you want to know there's usually something like a sleep score that's also reasonably good. But as soon as those smart watches are trying to tell you anything more than just how long you slept or the sleep score, those are the things it's not very good at. Like, so for those smart watches to be able to tell you what sleep stages you were in, for instance, is pretty inaccurate. Um, And the whole, there's this idea that if I have a smart watch on and then my alarm clock can wake me up at a specific time that I'm gonna feel better, that part turns out to not be totally based on great science yet either i think it's a conceptually a great idea but that doesn't always hold up to the scientific tests
0: can we just all agree that the old school alarm clocks with really loud bells and the bam 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 was just good for nobody
2: totally <laughs> <laughs> i think we could agree on that okay
0: rebecca spencer here uh, do you keep a notebook next to your bed as a dream scientist to write when you wake up and remember them or do you just leave that and what do you do
2: you know, I don't. I think of now and then when I'm teaching about it, I'll practice this. And and it turns out you don't even have to do it for very long. If you do it for a little bit of time, you can actually just train yourself to be a better dream recaller. You don't have to write it down every day. You've just kind of trained yourself to be good about thinking about it every day. And so you can even do it just for the short term. Um, what I actually keep a notebook beside my bed for is more about ideas that come to me in the middle of the night, because I think it's not just even my dreams per se say but i just think that you do get to this kind of problem solving melu in your brain right like i think it's putting connections in place i think it's helping solve problems and some of those things then come to you in the middle of the night and rather than obsessing about remembering it in the morning a good solution is to write it down
0: that's so good i had a dream just the other day that I wrote the best screenplay ever that no one's ever written. Like, I I wrote, I'm like, no one's ever written this. And then it actually gets to here. It actually loops back to the beginning. And there's the surprise. Aha! And, oh, my God, And this is the best. I've never written a screenplay. There's nothing about my life. There's no ounce of me that says you should write a screenplay one day nothing but somehow in this dream i was convinced you got to tell brandon because he's gonna love this and everything else and then i woke up and like i was in and out of sleep in the morning in the dream out of the dream into the awake gotta look at the thing and and i was back to sleep and i'm like yep i'm gonna remember this and then all of a sudden around two or three o'clock in the afternoon after i'd been up for a bunch of hours i was like oh i don't remember the screenplay (laughs) so (laughs) I feel see, like I get You that. missed your opportunity I with the
2: notebook beside the bed. <laughs> it could have
0: been a million dollars. Oh. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Thank you so much for this. It's so incredibly insightful. I, I find it's, I, I think it takes some of the burden off. I think uh, there's a lot of people that sleep has become a negative storyline for them. And um, obviously, some people struggle to sleep, and there are all kinds of uh, things that you should go see your doctor for. And if you are struggling to sleep, but. I think my ask, um, being inspired by you, Rebecca, is that anybody who feels like they're not getting the sleep they need, you know, in your heart, uh, maybe see a psychologist, maybe see your, your your GP and go to the doctor and start that conversation. Because I feel like this is inspiring to know that your brain, um, should be working hard for you to get the rest and if it's not it's possible there's something going on that can help you um and get a little bit of help and and maybe it's just talking to somebody or maybe it's routine or uh you know maybe there's medication i'm not big on medication myself but you know allow the professionals to help you i guess is what i'm saying
2: I completely agree. And I think it's just important to give yourself the space to sleep and so that and then the ability to sleep when you can sleep requires things like just practicing good habits around how you're using light, practice good habits around how you're using caffeine, and just practicing what I call good sleep hygiene will go a long way so that whenever your sleep opportunity is and whatever, however long or short you have, you want to set yourself up for sleep success.
0: And we'll all celebrate the puddle of drool when we wake up
2: yes we will
0: (laughs) thanks so much for being here
2: you're welcome thanks for having me
3: this is the shift podcast tipping
0: a nice gesture an expectation pressure on you to pay more for things that you might not even been happy with guilt tipping is a thing nowadays we're past a tablet And they've got a bunch of buttons on it. Actually, there's usually like five or six or seven. Well, most of those buttons will give the uh, server a tip, and the fourth will not. Do you feel guilted, though, into tipping? Um, The Today Show in the States grabbed this great quote from one of the companies that manufactures those tipping tablets. Here's what they had to say.
4: Well, here we go. Mobile
3: payment vendor. This is from Square Inc. They wrote it's one thing to bypass a tip jar or leave the gratuity line blank when you're signing a check, like a bill, but it's harder to physically press a button saying you aren't going to leave anything. Here's uh, Nair, who's a writer for uh, TechCrunch, wrote uh, picking a preloaded amount is simply easier than changing the tip amount, even if you know you're over tipping. So you want to tip, let's say, uh, eight bucks, but it says ten there. It's easier just to press the ten, even though you know you're over tipping a little bit.
0: Because then you don't have to hit other, and then you don't have to enter in seven dollars and eighty nine cents, because you want to do ten percent or whatever. It's the same thing when you go to leave the big box store, and they say, "Would you like to donate two dollars to the children?" Now it's beautiful if that's your thing, and you like to donate two dollars to the children, but you have to understand. They're doing it in public in full voice in front of other people um, for a reason. Because they most likely you're going to just tip $2, right? I like to call it drip effect. That's what I like to call it. I don't even know if that's a thing. I might have made that up. Might have stole it from somebody. But basically, it's like a coffee percolator. It just drips the money, right? So we we really need to be aware of all of it. What do you tip? Do you notice this guilt tipping thing happening eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. i tip over the top if the service was over the top if the service was low grade i pay low grade says a taxer. um i would agree with that i think that tipping uh is for over and above service let's go to winnipeg talk to johnny hey johnny
5: yeah terry Fox you see it's terry fox Weekend. i was just gonna talk about tipping i i i I won't tip anybody at a a restaurant unless they let me use their washroom. There's a lot of washrooms in in, in Winnipeg. They're still under the COVID uh, rules. They don't let you go to the washroom. It's locked or... There's also other uh, you know rules that are still in effect, but I I, I just wanted to mention about the t- tipping when you're punching in the number, it says other, uh, you have to be careful at that uh, other sometimes you could put a hundred dollars and when you want to put a dollar, is it, it doesn't have a decimal place, so you have to be really mm. careful on some of those pay uh, push buttons, especially at football games when you're. Uh, hey Johnny, rolls. let
0: me ask you a question here, Johnny. When you uh, when you tip, do you um. Do you feel pressure to tip though? Do you feel like it's there's pressure for you there to to um, to make a tip even if you don't want to?
5: You no, know, I never feel pressure. I just uh, uh, feel. Uh the uh, person gave me good service, or if the uh, if there's uh, like, uh, uh they're in a hurry, you know there's nothing there's no, uh, no reason. They just don't they just ignore me. I, I just don't yeah. feel pressured uh, any other way. But can I request a song by very Glitter? Uh, the history of I'll Radio? tell you what I'm
0: going to put you on hold here uh, for you, Thank Johnny, you? and we'll get Jono to take your call. Uh, back in a couple of seconds he'll get that request for you in the background i'm gonna we might have to wait a little bit johnny just so you know because it is uh new music monday today uh on this tuesday morning so we're probably not gonna get to that so we will come back uh to that just off the air okay thanks johnny for asking 877-399-9898 also in winnipeg Ev evelyn my friend
1: Hi, do you tip
0: evelyn I, how much do you tip
1: yeah, yes i do okay the restaurant if i'm sitting at a restaurant i'm being served. That's the regular fifteen percent tip that I that that I would put. Um, with regards to takeout or whatever, they have a skip button. They do have a skip button on the iPad. I do put a skip on there because I'm not I'm not going to feel guilty for not tipping. Um, with regards to pizza delivery or whatever delivery guy, they get most of my tipping because the fact is they do have to travel and they have to you know do certain extra things that you know restaurant people don't do. So basically, that's how I work it.
0: Okay, good. Now, do you feel pressured at all, Ev, when you get um, when you get that that tablet or whatever turned around and they're they're watching you with the eagle eye? Do you ever you ever felt guilted into tipping?
1: No, because then I would give them I would give them a business finance lesson. <laughs> that's <laughs> how you spend your money. Oh, I'm serious because I've been in business and finance for a long time, and the fact mm. of the matter is, you know, service does cost money. If you're not mm-hmm. getting the proper service, why on earth would you tip? See that—that's—that's right. that's my motto. Yeah.
0: Well, I agree, and uh, of course, the eternal question that we can't answer in one conversation is, uh, service costs whom money, and who should the service cost money to? Which is always amazing because, uh, who should be paying for it? Very cool, Evelyn. You're amazing. Thanks for calling in. Great to hear from you. Oh,
1: you're welcome. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, it was nice to talk to you. Thanks. Bye bye, Shie. Thanks.
0: Bye bye. Eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. Welcome back, guys. I usually tip about 10%. They have to be very rude not to get anything. Good product knowledge, attentiveness to the table after food is delivered, and friendly interactions add to the tip. I'll go to the 20% or so. I never use the tip buttons on the machine from Colleen, the church lady. Um, Yeah, well, it's good service for me, right? It's just that simple. Uh, Sometimes the food is bad. That's not the server's fault. I always generally tip for the service. I love to give a good tip if it's, if it's worth it. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, Ms. Josie is uh, an active member on the Facebook page and, um, Josie is, um, Josie's a contributor online all the time and Josie has gone and, and shared a, uh, I guess it's safe to say, uh, can we bring Josie on for me? Uh, Josie, I seem to say it was it was an essay that you wrote. Hey, that you you just wanted to share the experience of of being a driver and and uh, just so tell me before you get into the experience of being a driver, I'll ask you that. But I do want to know um, why an essay? Why did you write this? Because you did share it at shiftheads.ca, and I appreciated it very much. So, what inspired this first?
4: Well, it's it's down to to what you're talking about. About uh, there's there's been a lot of backlash about uh, guilt tipping. But the problem is these uh, delivery applications have created, they've deliberately created an environment where if you don't tip in advance, and, and that's the key thing, if you don't tip in advance, you're going to get lousy service.
0: Yeah. Now, when I drove Skip the Dishes, because I did that for a season in between jobs, and uh, that that was before, Josie, that when you could... When you didn't have a choice to decline, I don't know if you were doing it back then. You couldn't decline orders. You just basically they came up in your queue. You had no choice. Did you work on that back then?
4: I did not. I uh, I started uh, with both of them in about 2018. Yeah. Um, I, I've done Skip. I've done DoorDash. I've done Uber Eats, and uh, at, at least today you can decline all the orders you want, and that's and that's the model that they've built up this on. I mean, yeah. if you the base pay is, is usually about $4 per order, and yeah. if you're lucky, you can do three of those per hour. So that's $12, and you cannot make a living on that. You've got to pay your gas. You've got to pay your maintenance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So if customers don't tip in advance, we see that, and we hit the decline button, and there is no penalty for that because we're independent contractors. But Yeah, well, yeah. well and that was a lawsuit customer, too, by
0: the way, for want to know.
4: Exactly. So if, if customer tips five dollars or ten dollars, you know what, I'm gonna jump on that because now I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna raise my income. So what they the, the environment that they've created is to to turn a tip not into a tip but a bid. A bid wow. for service. Yeah. Okay, so this,
0: this gets so deep though, Josie. So there was one texter said I I'd never text delivery drivers because it's often it's often misunderstood that they're they're getting paid and I have a friend who owns multiple restaurants and he has said to me many times the only people that make money in those deals is skip the dishes because the restaurants pay a portion skip the dishes skip the dishes makes money off every piece of the transaction except for you know the driver makes their money and, and the restaurant gets paid their prices the prices that you pay it doesn't all go to the restaurant there's a portion that goes on there just to be clear for everybody on that part and so I'll tell you a story uh, that if you live in Calgary, you'll understand this. I'll try to explain it in a way that it makes sense. I was driving Skip the Dishes. I was in Northwest Calgary. was my quadrant. I got a call to uh, one on next on my list. Uh, I had to go downtown to a restaurant downtown. And in Calgary, it's quadrants, and it was barely in the Northwest, right? Like It was like two blocks in, and sure. it was rush hour. It was, uh, it was unbelievable. And so I went down there and I spent all this time in rush hour and then I picked up the food and I went, it went to the university. It was a student. There was no tip. And I said to the person, I was mad at this point. I'm like, you know what? This was so dumb. I just spent like 30 minutes waiting in traffic for your order and there's no tip. I said, it's inconsiderate. And the person said to me, he said to me this, he said, he said, I know I drive skip too. And I said, well, then you know better. I'm just a student. I don't care if you're just a student, you know, better. Then I got another order. I went downtown. Then I got another order. I had to drive all the way from downtown to the suburbs, which was about 40 minutes. There was no tip. Got there, picked up the food, drove it two blocks to the lazy buggers house who could have (laughs) walked, dropped it off, and no tip, saw saw the person in the window. Now, their perspective is very simple. Well, it's only two blocks. You're getting four bucks for two blocks whatever, they don't think of that other part of the drive to get there in the first place, do they?
4: No, they don't. And and here's the other thing uh, that uh, uh, most customers do not understand. If uh, DoorDash is the worst, but uh, they're, they're all bad this way. You go in, you, you pick a restaurant, you select your food, everything's good, and you see a delivery fee and a service fee because they always tack on a service fee. And they always assume, the customers always assume, and why wouldn't they, that all of that money goes to the driver. And it doesn't. It mm-hmm. goes to the apps.
0: <sighs> the question is, though, is that always comes back to this, it's like I said to Evelyn, it's that who should be paying for the good service? Should it be the restaurant? Should it be, you know, skip the dishes or should it be the customer? And, and my point has always been, even though I have friends who own hospitality and their argument will be very different. uh, As I always say that this is just, they should be paid enough money to do the job. And, but their argument is that we are, it is so transient that people just don't care that it's very, the ones that stick around, they do get paid, but 90% of the employees come and go. And so do the drivers on skip and, and nobody sticks around, so therefore you're just a number, and, and nobody seems to care. Is that your experience?
4: My feeling on that is it's not the restaurant's fault, clearly. I mean, you know, in, in many cases, they're being charged up to a 30% commission uh, on the order, over and above everything else, and the drivers are being paid minimally. Now, on the other hand, if you look to Europe and Australia, uh, th- these countries where tipping is not part of the 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 culture and in those countries the drivers actually make good money they're they're paid very well and the customer is charged accordingly the delivery fees are higher but they understand that delivery fee is going to the driver that's not how it works however in canada and the united states
0: I was in Dublin, as you know from listening to the show, Josie. That uh, when I sat down with my friend Julie, we're at a pub, and I said, "What's common to tip here?" And she said, "Oh, nobody tips here." I said, "What do you mean nobody tips yeah, you, here?" She says, you just oh, "They make a healthy income."
4: The next, uh, euro yeah. or a pound.
0: That's it. They usually like you just if it's if it's seventeen or eighteen euros, you just pay twenty euros and you walk out. Exactly. Um, and you—that's about it, right? And like uh, you don't worry about the pennies, and they—and that's it, though. And th- there's no expectation of it. Because the answer was very simple. These people make a healthy wage. They don't care to be tipped. They don't need to be tipped. Uh, if you want to, they're going to be tickled, uh, but you know you don't have to. So uh, if you want to check out Josie's essay, it is at shiftheads.ca. Scroll down in the feed. You're going to find it there and give it a read because if you ever order food or get into this conversation, my invitation to you is educate yourself a little bit with the words from a driver who does it regularly and that's incredibly important which by the way josie thanks for posting the yoda i just saw it pop up there so i appreciate
3: that
4: thank you shane a longtime listener first time colleague
3: this is the shift podcast
0: are you okay with
6: chess chess yeah i love chess amazing I actually haven't watched it yet. I know I am. Um... no. <laughs> yes, I'm very far behind on it. I know. I but, um uh...
0: I loved chess until Queen's Gambit. Because and then it wasn't you find until out like how, how incredibly good at chess the people are that play it for a living. And then for me, I'm like, oh, this guy moves here, and that's fun, and whatever. And yep. all once once all the formulas are there and the how that all works, and this is this defense for that
6: attack and all of this
0: strategy stuff i'm like i thought i knew how to play chess back to checkers for me
6: yeah uh would you like to know the single nerdiest thing about me the single nerdiest thing about me
0: you mean we don't
6: know this already you don't oh man. i was in i was in the grade seven chess club in elementary school i was okay in i'm sorry can, can you chess say club? that one, yep, say it, say I, it one more time for me Yep. let me recenter for you yeah. i ryan o'donnell was in the chess club in elementary school. Really? Yes. Nerd. There it is. That's nerdy. Yeah. I came in second, and I was really mad that I lost, and I thought I was going to get a prize, but I didn't.
0: Did you get mad? And what does a nerd do when he gets mad for losing? He does. Did you like go the, mad, you know, get mad, and go home and study yeah, more science. You
6: Clench your fists together. You do like the breathing through your teeth because you're angry. Oh, I know what you did. You You grabbed your inhaler
0: and you took a big puff.
6: (laughs) No, I don't need an inhaler anymore, thankfully. (laughs) Kicked asthma when I was in great, when I was four years old. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Hmm. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, if you don't know chess and maybe it's something that you always thought it would be something you're interested in, here's a great lesson on how to play chess from HBO's The Wire.
5: Nah, hold up, hold up. Y'all don't know how to play chess, do you? So, so, so nothing, man. Look, I'll teach y'all if y'all want to learn. Come School on, you? man. Nah, come on. Right in the middle uh, of the game, yo. Down, chill out. I want to see look, this. you can't be playing no checkers on no chess, right, boy, right, yo. Man. All right, all right. All right, man. Now look, check it. It's simple. It's simple. See this? This the kingpin, all right? And he the man.
4: You get the other dude's king, you got the game.
0: It's, it's very mob strategy. Text That's comes it. in and says, what was your game name? You, you have a game name in chess? I didn't, I, feel like I didn't have a game name. I would probably.
6: Dragons. Yeah, I'd probably think of like a pun. Uh, the. I'm Ryan Coke. No, no, I would make a chess pun. Like it would have to be directly like. Uh, I. You know what? Probably back then, what, back then, pwned, like pwned, P-W-N-E-D was like a saying. You just got pwned. I would yep. have been like, you just got pawned because the pawn, that's probably right. what my name would have been. You wouldn't I'm, be like the Knight Rider God, or something like that? No, I am not like doing a good job of marketing myself tonight, am nope. I? Oof, not nope. Not good at all.
0: Uh, chess can be very competitive. Strategy goes into the game is amazing. Math also is a big part of chess, kind of like the perspective of counting cards if you're breaking the law, mm-hmm. playing poker and stuff. Uh, chess robots are a thing because of all of the math, but... Can a chess robot beat a human at chess? Well, it turns out that a chess robot did beat a human, just not a chess.
6: So a chess playing robot breaking a boy's finger during a game. This happened at the Moscow chess open and officials say the boy made a move during the robot's turn and that caused the robot to grab his index finger and squeeze it. Several bystanders helped free the boy and take him away from the table. And imagine how scary this though uh, how scary this was though he was able to continue to compete even after his little finger was put in a cast
0: his little finger that's from CNN by the way uh chess robot bully yeah
6: he also stole his
0: lunch <laughs>
6: <laughs> yeah it sounds like it, but the thing is the bully's actually playing chess so the bully is like a nerd in this scenario too
0: mm-hmm. Representative for the Russian Chess Tournament said the Chess Federation had rented the robot that appeared in many previous events without any incidents. Ugh. You know, Russia can officially do nothing right. That's really what this boils down to. (laughs) Yeah, duh. Like, Russia was like the the mecca of chess. Now they screw that up. Man. Which, by the way, I went uh, shopping for vodka this weekend. Yeah. And I walked into a store and it, um, there was all kinds of like the white Russian vodka Mm -hmm. and all kinds of very Russian sounding. I don't know my Russian versus Ukrainian versus Polish sounds, of course. Yep. But you know what the store did a really good job? They, all of the ones that were on there that were not Russian had a tag on it on the shelf that said, uh, distilled and packaged in Canada or um, distilled and packaged, packaged in Latvia and stuff like that. So I thought that was really kind of cool. Although if you are the company that owns, I don't know, what's a white Russian or Russian Prince or something like that vodka, like uh, there's a point here where you got to start to rebrand, right? Regardless of people who know your, your vodka. Anyway, I thought that was fascinating. I I, I guess I kind of wanted to acknowledge the store for not allowing misunderstanding about that area of the world to stop you from buying vodkas that might even not be from that world. So thought that was kind of cool, which by the way, they were for um what we used to call Moscow mules, which now I've heard be called uh, Dutch mules. Out of the Netherlands for
6: the drink. They make a Kettle One, which is a very good vodka. That is uh, made in the Netherlands. I actually thought that was Russian up until recently, up until the invasion. Uh, So so that makes sense that they would change it to a Dutch. Uh, Trying to deprogram
0: the Moscow Mule out of my
6: vocabulary as well. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's the world today. My God. Are you okay with
6: processed cheese? Reluctantly, yes. Like you know, when you cut a slice of like real cheddar, you know it. It tastes so good. But a slice of like processed cheese on top of a cheeseburger is just like there's just Heavenly. something so wrong, but so right about it. It's just oh, it's so nothing good. Nothing
0: wrong. Nothing wrong. <laughs> so really it is it absolutely beautiful. In I fact, at track. a second slice. Put it on the bottom yeah. one, too.
6: Yeah. And, and the coloring, too. Like, you know, when I found out that cheddar isn't supposed to be yellow, they just dye it. I was mind blown. That's wrong. But I, when it's yellow, I want it more. Like Five Guys, when you cut See, open I a Five know. Guys burger and you I just didn't know speak.
0: that cheddar wasn't yellow.
6: Yeah. Yeah. That's why, like, real proper age cheddar is white. But See, we as consumers, what is Parmesan now? is white.
0: Marble is, like, half white, half yellow. See, I didn't yep. know
6: that. Just died yeah
0: just anyway died. back to the good stuff back to the the processed cheese whether it's spreadable comes wrapped in plastic or many other ways there was a very secret way that my dad did this one by the way we'll talk to that in a second do you like processed cheese as much as Homer Simpson does
5: mm, 64 slices of american cheese 64 63. One.
6: Have you been up all night eating cheese? I think I'm blind.
0: <laughs> a lot of mouth noises. That was gross.
6: Oh, classic. Well, if you do
0: love processed cheese, there's a great product for you from Velveeta Cheese. Velveeta has made nail polish in the past, but this new special product is really something else.
2: The cocktail is getting a lot of attention. It's called uh, the Veltini. What? It's a take on the classic martini, but made with Velveeta infused vodka. Wow. Garnishes include Velveeta stuffed olives and jumbo shells. You can get this drink at BLT steak restaurants. Okay. And yes, there is one on I Street Northwest. Velveeta is also selling a limited number of kits <laughs> that so you can't can make these at a home. <laughs>
0: That's from WUSA 9. Each uh, La La Dolce Velveeta cocktail costs $15. The drink itself combines Velveeta-infused vodka, prepped by literally mixing Velveeta cheese sauce and vodka at least 24 hours before serving, olive brine, vermouth into a glass martini glass, which is then garnished with a cheese drip. And Oh, man. Oh, cheese drip. That's not okay. And a cocktail pick of Velveeta stuffed olives and jumbo Velveeta shells and cheese.
6: Okay. So I don't want to say hear me out, but hear me out. Oh, boy. Vodka pairs really nicely with cheese. Like a martini and like a nice like charcuterie board is really good. That's one thing. But... Velveeta cheese is essentially just a brick of, of like Kraft dinner, like Katie slices. And that kind of cheese does not belong with high quality liquor. It belongs in Mac and cheese and cheeseburgers and stuff like that. So that's where I think this is just wrong. Um,
0: What? It belongs with low quality liquor.
6: Yeah. Yeah. Not a $15 cocktail. I mean, yeah.
0: Drinking out of a brown paper bag. Okay. Now, To the text that comes in that says only on grilled cheese. Absolutely. It's the best on grilled cheese. Do you know the secret way to cut Velveeta? This is my father. My father loves cheese whiz. My father grilled cheese, Velveeta. Like never, you have never experienced passion before. Like my dad and Velveeta cheese on a grilled cheese.
6: Okay. When I grew up, there was
0: always Velveeta in the fridge. Do you know how to cut Velveeta cheese?
6: Well, um, I would just use a a knife and a. And, and and cut it i i didn't know that there was a technique to this mm-hmm. what is there the is secret? there's an art okay what's the art
0: ready for the secret that'll blow your mind if ever you've had Velveeta cheese according to my father that i've seen him do master okay you cut it with a string like a thread even oh like soap like how people so get, cut bricks of soap except you grab a, th- a thread yeah. and then you just push it down through the cheese and it doesn't squash the cheese, and the cheese doesn't stick to the knife blade, all of the things. It is a perfectly wow. even-sliced, straight-cut, does not squish and get flattened, way to cut Velveeta cheese. Thank you, Jim Hewitt, the knowledge my father has bestowed upon me.
6: That's actually pretty good, because that is a very, very real problem with the Velveeta. That's very real. Damn. Okay. I'm going to have to create, like, a designated cheese string now. Just well, the coming. good news
0: is, is you can probably just replace it for very cheap. Yes. Use dental. You'll be all right. (laughs) Are you look, you came for a insightful, deep, Mm -hmm. inspiring show and we're giving you Velveeta. It is what it is. The show's Mm -hmm. free. (laughs) Don't proudly. (laughs) That's repulsive. Just eat cheese and drink liquor.
6: (laughs) Yeah. That's a great point. (laughs) Probably could have just said that at the start. Shouldn't we?
0: That's a good text. Um,
6: are you okay with lemonade? In fact, are you drinking lemonade right now? Mm. Right now. Nice. I love lemonade, but it does like the the citrusy stuff. Like I feel like it kind of makes my throat like, I don't want to say close up, but I don't really like the way. It makes my mouth feel after drinking. It's very acidic. acidic. Yeah, but it is so refreshing and Lynchburg lemonade whiskey and lemonade is has become probably my favorite summer cocktail I tried that for the first time this year dangerous and delicious
0: okay um lemons squeezed make your own sugar water mix to your your palate uh and I, it allows me to do it without um my kids because I, I don't like it as strong I like my kids take it right out of the bottle <laughs> right so it yeah, allows me to yeah, dilute too. and be a cheap father which is nice now how about this we love lemonade we've agreed upon that what about lemonade from a lemonade stand two kids from montreal started their very own lemonade stand for an amazing reason
7: thank you so much
3: for the second straight weekend, brothers Ariel and Ness Partouche Massa are selling lemonade on the front lawn of their home in Montreal's West Island to raise money for the Multiple Sclerosis Society of Canada.
1: If we give a bunch of money to the charity, we can find a cure for multiple sclerosis.
3: The cause is very close to the hearts of both boys. Their mother, Ayana, was diagnosed with the degenerative disease in 2020.
7: Every day is a fight, but having these kinds of kids... How do I not fight for them?
3: Their secret recipe has helped raise more than $1,500. Even the local bus driver is on board. The bus driver's on board.
0: (laughs) Pretty good. Pretty good. good. Okay, now, lemonade stand, great idea. Seems to be working. Fundraising, hardworking kids. Inspiring, right? Well, this whole thing went sideways due to a very angry customer. And what happened next is rather shocking. The mother says the
3: boys were periodically using a megaphone to attract customers, and one angry man... He said,
7: you little mother effers, I'm going to shut you down. So I told him to get the hell off my property, and he said, I'm calling the police.
3: Minutes later, she says police arrived and told her the stand must be shut down.
7: I tell him, look, officer, give me a fine. I'll pay the fine. He said, oh... I'm not giving you a fine. You think that because you're in a wheelchair, you're above the law?
3: She says the officer threatened to arrest her, so she started recording.
7: Honest to God, like, is this normal? The guy had his hand on his holster telling me that I'm aggressive. And I told him to get off my property. He refused.
3: Three hours later, she says police left.
7: Well, it ended with this sergeant telling me my kids are not allowed to have their megaphone and that they don't want to have to come back here and arrest me.
0: Wow. That's from Global's Dan Spector. Montreal Police said they would not be in a position to comment on the case on Sunday, explaining more analysis would be needed before they issue any kind of statement. Retired Montreal Police Officer Andre Durocher wondered if the mother unnecessarily escalated the situation. He said, police rarely put an uh, end to lemonade sales without a permit. In that case, it's not necessarily the action on your property, but the distraction or problem it causes he explained the mother is demanding an apology from the police. Neighbors dropped by to show the boys support on Sunday as they sold lemonade, although they did it without their megaphone. Now, it depends on bylaws and all those things, of course. And, um, you know, lemonade stands probably are technically illegal, as long as they're not distracting drivers. I left the Stamps game. I went to the Stamps game. Uh, congratulations, by the way, Winnipeg fans, because you really owned that game. It was fun to watch, though. I went to the stamps game on Saturday, and on the way leaving the stadium, girl guides set up on the yep. way to the train station. Yep. selling girl guide cookies with megaphones. These little squirt of kids, they were there on the megaphones. Got your girl guide cookies here. And they were like the beer guy from the stadium, and they were owning it. And I was so how anybody was truly offended unless it, I guess it was going on all day. By kids on a megaphone trying to sell some stuff. High five for your entrepreneurial spirit, my friends. I like that.
6: All right here. uh, I want to do one more. Let's do, in that case, let us do the, oh, do the cat food one. That's a good one.
0: Well, before we start this one, then let's start this completely out of context. Now that you know, the context
4: (laughs) in art matters of taste are often subjective. But in life, good taste is well defined. Fancy feast gourmet cat food in the bowl, single serving can exceptionally moist, uniquely delicious. For a gourmet taste to satisfy even the most discriminating connoisseurs, fancy feast. Good taste is easy to recognize.
0: Are you okay
6: with cat food? It looks nasty. Dog food, yeah, like dog food just looks like those little tablets or little like kibble bits, but like cat food, it like plops out of the can and it looks. Mm. Like just, I remember, like oof. you'd go
0: do that, and it would—you would see like round intestines or something that was like yeah. some sort of guts in there. It's like worse than. we love it, But
3: yeah, uh, it is great it. for
0: cats. But um, have you ever really looked at cat food and said, "Hmm, let's give it a go"? I hope not. Um, no. Well, if you fall into that unfortunate category, uh, here's a treat. Cat food brand Fancy Feast will open a temporary cat food inspired restaurant for humans in New York City. Gatto Bianco by Fancy Feast. <laughs> Domo ori gatto? Gatto. Uh, uh, anyway, uh two-day pop-up will be an Italian-style trattoria. Is that how you say that anyway? I've never known. Is that how you say it? I think so. Trattoria? Trattoria. Trattoria always wondered that.
6: Uh, tra-
0: Couldn't tell you. Uh, a culinary yeah. experience with recipes inspired by the brand's food, according to a press release. Oh, my God. Did you really write this? Ryan says, <laughs> we're not kidding around here. Seriously. Sorry. I'm sorry. The menu was made by the brand's chief, uh, Amanda Hassner, the Michelin star-winning Italian chef, Cesar Casella. Uh, Chef who has been seen on Iron Chef America and Anthony Bourdain No Reservations when his show was on, which was one of my favorite shows of all time, by the way. Uh, No word on what the fancy human feast will actually taste like. Let's hope that there's no intestine tubes mixed into it i hope that they walk up with a can and you hear the click of it open and they just like plop it on your plate and
1: walk
5: away
6: (laughs) watch that that's the most new york thing i've ever heard ever would be just if they dress up this whole experience and then all it is is literally just a can of cat food cat food with a
0: garnish and then people eat it and then they're like this is amazing that was 147 dollars for your appetizer Oi! All right. Um, there you go. That's Are You Okay With? I'm Shane Hewitt. The, sorry for the bad puns. What can I say? It's been a couple of days off here. We're a little rusty.
2: Thanks for
3: listening to The Shift Podcast.
0: Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.